Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas. Thank you for being with us tonight for our program, Documenting Humanity, a Sense of Place. World Canvas is presented by University of Iowa International Programs, your global intersection, connecting Iowa with the world in a university without borders. We're gathered in the Senate chamber of the Old Capitol Museum tonight, and this program will be broadcast over UITV, KRUI-FM, and Iowa Public Radio. We're also streaming World Canvas Live over International Programs' website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Live streaming is made possible by our partners in ITS, Information Technology Services. As I mentioned, our overarching topic tonight is that mysterious thing called a sense of place. Our guests will be reflecting on just what it is that creates the indelible and often unspoken imprint of a place on our minds and our memories. Whether good or bad, we take the read of a place and it stays with us. It's both intuitive and tangible. It's a mix of feelings, sensory memories, the family context, climate, landscape, people, smells, and so on. We'll also be talking about what we leave behind as a record of ourselves about documenting humanity. I don't think we could start in a better place than uh, with the Oxford Project and the two uh, interesting guys who are next with me here. They collaborated on next to me, and uh, they collaborated on this project, the Oxford Project. They are artist Peter Feldstein and journalist Stephen Bloom. Please welcome them to our program. Well, we uh, have met before on a program similar to this to talk about the Oxford Project, and um, it is just as fresh for me today as it was that first time I heard about this really compelling, interesting project, the book that has resulted from it, um, the travel this uh, project has taken all around this country and also overseas. So I think we need to go back to the beginning and start with you, Peter, and ask you how the Oxford Project began more than 20 years ago. <coughs> Well, I, uh, I taught photography for many years, and uh, um, uh, a couple of the people that I talked about had a big influence on me. One was a, a, a conceptual artist named Doug Hubler, Douglas Hubler, and his uh, major overarching project was to photograph everyone in the world. And you could see it was a conceptual idea, a conceptual project, but um, the idea, of course, was that it could possibly be done even though it really couldn't. And that's the one, and then the other was a, a guy named Dis Farmer, a photographer from Heber Springs, Arkansas, who uh, photographed people in his town. And they're just uh, from the 1915 to into the mid 50s. And they're just wonderful, warm, generous, amazing photographs. And they're just very straightforward, no pretension. And um, so I just had this idea popped into my head. It was a summer, and um, I had this idea and did it kind of on a lark that I could photograph, actually, photograph everybody in Oxford. Oxford had about 676 people, and um, I did it uh, that summer. I photographed about uh, almost that many. And, um, and then I had an exhibit at the American Legion Hall in Oxford, <laughs> and, uh, and then put them away until Steve came to my studio one day and we were talking and he said, what are those over there? And I told him and, uh, about what I had done and uh, he said, you should do that again. And we went back and forth. I said, no, he said, yes. I said, no, he said, yes. <laughs> and finally I, I started just taking some quick photographs 
and I realized right away that um, that uh, and I, I printed them side by side, small prints, and I realized how amazing they were. Not even because of my photographs, just because what happens to a person over a 22-year period. And I showed them to Steve. And and Steve said, "Wow, th this is great." Um, and thus began the Oxford Project for Peter and me. Um, but Peter changed it around a little bit, and Peter suggested that I begin recording the stories that people have. Um, and so... I actually vowed that I would only do it if he did that. So. <laughs> and so we went um, from door to door. Oftentimes people came to Peter's studio in Oxford, and um, I don't use a tape recorder. I just um, took my notes, and we did about 100 people. Uh, and our first question to everyone was, after showing the before picture and the after picture, was, um, what's changed? It's a great opening line because some people would take it literally and they would say, oh gosh, I've, I've lost all my hair. Other people would take it more metaphorically and they would say, oh, so much has changed. Uh, I'm a different person now. I was skittish and nervous as a teenager and now I feel secure. Um, so it became a, a project, not just photographing people, but really anchoring these people in a place of Oxford, Iowa. And our thought always was that, in a certain sense, we wanted this project to, to live and to survive and to flourish, so that perhaps in a thousand years, in two thousand years, when we're all dead many generations ago, someone would be able to look at these photographs and this text and say, that's what it was like to live in the middle of this country that used to be called the United States of America, or still is called the United States of America. It's not the story of the mayor, it's not the story of the president, it's not the story of the power brokers, it's the story of just the butcher, the baker, the bartender, um, just any, anyone, everyone. And so that was what we hoped to, to accomplish. And in many ways, I think in a, in, a, in a small way, we've done that. We realized that it, in a funny way, it was about a very small locale, a small town in the Midwest. But uh, the stories also had a universal appeal, I think, because they're everybody's stories. Mm -hmm. that, that, that really has struck us because of the responses that we've been getting from people all over the country and the world. And for those who don't know where Oxford is, we should place it on a map. Close to Iowa City, it's the home you've lived in yes. for 30-some years. 16 miles west uh, uh, toward Amana on, on Highway 6. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you have, you didn't grow up in Iowa, but you've lived in the town of Oxford for many, many years while you were teaching here at the University yeah. of Iowa. And so these people were your neighbors, the right. people you photographed. Yeah. You, on the other hand, Stephen, were not a neighbor in the same town as the people of Oxford. Yeah, that's right. And um, Peter and I created a really perfect marriage between us in that Peter vetted me. People trusted me, I think, because they trusted Peter. And by proxy, they shared with me their stories. And we were, I think Peter also, um, we were both 
very struck by how honest, forthright uh, people were in talking about issues that were central to their lives, issues that weren't just about jubilation, that weren't just about celebration, but issues like alcoholism, um, issues of, of, of heartache and hardship. Life's disappointments. Yeah. So this is not a Hallmark card. This is really um, what you see is what you get, and people were very forthright. And I think it was because, Joan, that Peter was there and they trusted Peter, and then this other guy sort of parachutes in from the big University of Iowa, 16 miles away, and says, uh, tell us your stories, and, and they were ready to tell us their stories. A gratifying aspect of the project was that after we finished about a third to maybe a half, we would ask additional people to participate, and they would say, we were wondering when you are going to get to us. Yeah. We've got a lot of things to tell you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was nice. Word circulated very fast of what these two guys were doing, and um, the response was very positive. Yeah. Uh, one winter shortly after I lived, I, I, this, I had lived there about eight years before I did this, and one winter, um, um, my wife was living in New York for a few months, and I was, uh, our car died. And um, I was hitching a take, you know, a half hour, an hour, two hours. After I did the project, everybody knew me, and um, some even thought that I did the project in order to uh, be able to get, and then, then I would just have to stand there, and I wouldn't even have to put my thumb out, and they'd give me a ride. So I was accepted into the, this community. Read one of the, the little interview segments placed in between the two photos. The first photo, the one on your left, taken 20 years, 20 some years ago. The second one, uh, three or four years ago, I guess. Uh, so a 20 year span in the life of this woman. And uh, Stephen asked me to just read what the text says. This is uh, Kathy Tandy. She says, I make donuts at the depot. I'm up to 11 dozen a day. Chocolate cake, long johns, cream-filled Bismarcks, cinnamon rolls, raspberry-filled croissants, apple turnovers, donut holes, and crullers. I also cook lunch. Today I grilled 26 ribeyes. Meatloaf or chicken fried steak is the most popular. We serve it with party potatoes. They're mashed potatoes mixed with cream cheese, sour cream, and butter. Everyone in town has always known me as the big girl. The worst I ever got was 432 pounds. Bob Cochran had to weigh me on the livestock scale down at the sale barn. I couldn't walk around the house. I couldn't fit into a seat at the movie theater. I never went to a restaurant because I thought I'd break the chair. If I was lucky, they'd show me to a booth, but then I'd be afraid I wouldn't be able to fit in. I'd go into someone's house and die from embarrassment when the floorboards creaked. I couldn't take a bath because I couldn't get out of the tub. The body odor problems were awful. You get up and you walk to the other side of the room and you break into a sweat. People can be cruel, but everyone in Oxford's been supportive. They've sent me cards, even flowers. As I started losing weight, they'd call and say, you look great, keep it up. I've tried them all, Atkins, South Beach, Slim Fast, Weight Watchers. Now all I do is try to eat sensibly. Last time I weighed myself, I was 260 pounds. I want to get down to 220. On a big night, Gomer and I might go to Applebee's, Country Kitchen, or Wendy's. Gomer's a meat and potatoes kind of guy. Gomer can drink 12 cans of Pepsi a day, but he's a recovering alcoholic, so I'm not complaining. 
Gomer doesn't like to travel, but that's not going to stop me. In a month, I'm leaving with a girlfriend for Germany, Austria, and Amsterdam. Gomer can get along fine. He says he doesn't like to sleep alone. That's what he misses most. Kathy Tandy, 2006. A lot of intimate details there that, uh, that came from this person that you at least hadn't known before. Not a Hallmark card. Um, well, you know, there's a narrative arc to this. Um, you learn a lot about Kathy Tandy in a matter of about 380 words. And um, what, what we tried to do was shrink wrap these things. We tried to take out all of the air um, and just make it as dense and as full of stuff as possible. So we get a sense of who Kathy Tandy is. There's a sense of optimism. There's a sense of turmoil in her life. There's a sense of, of overcoming um, heartache and hardship. And, then she, and, and she's also allowing information throughout the narrative. We learn about Gomer. We learn about the alcoholism. And at the end, we learn that, you know, Gomer likes her because they, they're very intimate with each other in a, in a very close kind of way. But Kathy's going off to Europe. So there's a sense of jubilation at the end of this story. And what we try to do is, um, is something similar in each of these stories. People have asked us, which is our favorite story? And it's like, you know, who's your favorite child? Every story was great. And every story brought something to the table about this place, Oxford, and also universally about this place, America. Uh, we met a couple of weeks ago, and we were just generally chatting, and I asked you then whether you thought that uh, the story of these uh, 600 people in terms of the photographs, 100 for the interviews, um, if, if these uh, stories had been gathered from a group of people who lived together in a town like Philadelphia in the same four-block uh, um, spot, would the stories be different? Would they be qualitatively different? Or, uh, yeah. Some, some certainly would. I mean, because some are more about the place, about the, you know, the Midwestern farm town. But, you know, some are like, you know, the stories of infidelity, the stories of alcoholism, all the things yeah. that we talked about um, are pretty much the same. So I think that's how people could relate to a, a lot of them in that way. But, you know, like uh, the, Joe Booth, who uh, Steve is going to talk mm -hmm. about in terms of the translation, uh, um, uh, you know, he's a bronc rider. Uh, there aren't too many bronc riders in Philadelphia. There might yeah, be some. Yeah. Rodeo. Yeah. Rodeo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, Joan, that um, we, we happen to do Oxford because Peter lives there and because it's 16 miles away from where I live, and it just fascinated us. But I really think this project could have been the Berlin project. It could have been the Moscow project. It could have been the Sao Paulo project. It really is universal. Yeah. And they'd be much, well, they'd also be some stories that were so different and so, mm -hmm. that, that would locate them in a different way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But did you find that the people you talked to, they've lived in Oxford for a long time, most of them. They're yeah. happy living there. What, what is it they feel about their town? Um, well, there's, most people love being there. And some really love it and will never leave. Mm -hmm. I, I, I actually am one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, yet there are people who do express certain disappointments at not having left. But those, they actually, the few of those are actually pretty happy people. Yeah. So they're, yeah. they're content being there. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share with us some of the... the um, 
stories about uh, the travel of the Oxford Project overseas, because this project has not only toured the United States and been part of the Smithsonian um, um, touring exhibit, but it has also gone to Italy. And uh, Stephen and Peter worked with Cinzia Bloom of the Italian department here at the University of Iowa to translate some of these uh, interviews. And apparently there were some sort of translation challenges. Um, yeah, Joan's absolutely right. Uh, Cinzia Blum was, uh, is a native Italian speaker, and we had about oh, 30 of these panels translated into Italian. And um, one of them is Joe Booth, who, as Peter pointed out, is a cowboy. And this is what Joe said to us, just a paragraph. He's talking about riding a, a bucking bronco. If you're worried about getting hurt, then you better stay home. If it was easy, then girls and young children would do it. It's like a chicken riding a windmill. You just let her go and hang on for dear life. Well, I don't know about you out there, but I had never heard of the expression a chicken riding a windmill. <laughs> Cinzia, the Italian translator, had never heard of that either. And so Cinzia said, you know, I don't want people thinking that I'm a bad translator, but what does this mean? And I had to confess, no idea. Um, and so Chinzia just, you know, went for it word for word for word. Um, one of the nice things about, about what happened with this book is that people talk in their own vernacular. Um, and, you know, everyone spoke English quite well, but there is dialect and there is uh, just a, a rhythm that was almost poetic that we tried to capture in this book. Um, and, and that, to many people, meant an awful lot. Mm -hmm. So you now have an expression. It's like a chicken riding a windmill. <laughs> I don't really know what it means, but it can be anything you want it to mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Stephen, uh, earlier in the week, wrote a piece that was published in the Press Citizen on, on the sense of place. And I, I hope many of you had a chance to read it. I thought it was very, very interesting. And your, your finishing line, I think, tell us what you said at the very end. I think I have it here, but you said, that uh, you live in Iowa, but you'll never be Iowans. Yeah, Iowa is our home, but yeah. I'll never be an Iowan. Yeah. Oh, you know, home is a, is a very special place. And, um, you know, um, neither Peter nor I is a native Iowan. Um, I don't think if I live here for 40 years, I can call myself an Iowan. Mm -hmm. You know, in Oxford, one thing that, that distinguishes Oxford is there are a lot of two and three generation families that still live there. One of the families we interviewed, um, the Coxes. Yeah, the Coxes, oh. I think they have five, five, kids. Five, five kids, and four of the kids live within a block of their parents' place. These are not children, these are grown adults. And the fifth one lives 16 miles away on the other side of Oxford in Williamsburg. And so she's moved away. Um, so, and she's moved far away compared to her siblings. Um, so, I, you know, sense of place is really an important, it's an important issue of, of how you identify yourself, how you want to identify yourself, how you, you know, propel an image of yourself. And um, I think by and large to me, being an Iowan has to do with um, family. And the family I have here is the family I've created, my own family, you know, my, my wife and our son. But that's it. And so I don't really consider myself an Iowan because it's just one generation.
No, Peter and my feels differently. My experience is totally different. I mean, although I'm from New York, um, I, it, it, with the Cox family is a perfect example. I went up there one Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, to uh, photograph something around their farm or something. I can't remember. And um, all of a sudden, I was surrounded by family, by the by the Cox family. And um, and then one of them drove up, and I thought, Oh my God, he looks just like his dad. I never realized he was a Cox. And it was they came to trim the bushes and you know do this and do that and take care of the sheep and the horses and they live right at the edge of Oxford and they have animals. And I a tear I just started choking up. I thought this is what family is like. I've never known family like this. And um, uh, so yeah. Hmm. Well, um, if people have the opportunity to pick up this book, uh, the series of photographs, just, you know, fantastic. And, and also then the interview moments. But I know that one of the things you guys said the other day was that not only was it a very democratic process, uh, everybody had a chance to say what they wanted to say and to be photographed, but, but also there's wisdom in, in the words that might seem deceptively simple. Do you have anything you could say? Well. I, I certainly learned an awful lot from listening to a hundred people. Just you know, some of the interviews lasted twenty minutes, some lasted three hours, and that interview could have lasted seven hours. Um, so I learned a lot. W w one thing that comes back to me that I learned was uh, how fragile life is, and how life really turns on a dime. Uh, there's an interview with a, a terrific guy who um, had planned to, he was a third generation Oxfordian, and he had planned forever, since he was a little, little boy, to move to Hawaii. And um, he'd saved up his money, and he was moving to Hawaii. And he stopped off at Slim's, a bar in Tiffin, one afternoon, and he happened to meet Robin. And Robin and he got married, and they had two kids, and he never left. And in a sense, he became a real-life George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. And is Tim Hennis sad that he never got to Hawaii? I don't think so. I think his life is full and complete and, and redolent with joy. But there is that, that sense of poignancy that, that I carried with me after interviewing all these people, just that life does turn on a dime. And life is made up of very special moments, and oftentimes we don't know how significant those moments are until perhaps years later. Yeah. Yeah. For example, if he didn't stop at Slim's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who knows what it, where he'd be right now. And if you didn't live in Oxford, we wouldn't have this great project. Right. So thank right. you for that, Peter. Peter Feldstein and Stephen Bloom, I'm so glad you could be with us tonight. Please thank our guests. Thank, thank you, John. Robert Sayre has a deep appreciation for place, for the Iowa River and its lovely banks, and for Fire Island, New York, to mention only two spots of particular significance in his life.
Sarah taught at the University of Iowa from 1965 to 1998, and he's shared his discoveries about Iowa in two very special travel books, Take This Exit, Rediscovering the Iowa Landscape, and Take the Next Exit, New Views of the Iowa Landscape. I had hoped that Bob Sayre could be here with us in person tonight, but in fact, he's away in Fire Island enjoying the end of summer. Before he left, he was kind enough to record some thoughts about just what makes up the sense of place that we carry with us. Here is Bob Sayre. A sense of place is by definition subjective and personal, depending on the bond that someone has with a particular place and time. Thoreau had a sense of the beauty and purity of Walden Pond. Damon Runyon, an eye and ear for the character of Times Square. I mention writers because I know literature better than I know art and music, but such a sense of the look and or sounds and feeling of a place can also be found, obviously, in Grant Wood or in his fellow Midwestern regionalists and in Dvorak's American Quartet, which he wrote during the summer of 1893 in Spillville, Iowa. Do people less gifted than these also have their sense or senses of place? Of course they do, but I think their expressions of it are less compelling. The person can be a real bore who brags that he has lived all his life in this or that town or state and therefore is an authority on it. Or he can be comic, on the one hand a butt of jokes, on the other an earthy mocker of outsiders. Nevertheless, long acquaintance with a place can be very valuable. One of the reasons that the early settlers of the Amana colonies prized their contacts with the Meskwaki Indians who lived just up the Iowa River from them was that the Indians provided them with local knowledge of fish, game, and plants. As a boy learning to sail on Great South Bay, I looked up to a man named Chris Locker of West Savo, Long Island who had been an oysterman, clamor, and crew and captain on everything from fancy yachts to Coast Guard cutters. His sense of place was a sense of the bay, its channels and shallows, tides and currents, seasons and weather. He had what people called bay knowledge. So how does one acquire a sense of place if one is neither a wise and observant native nor a genius? My personal answer is that it takes study. As someone who was not a native Iowan and who came here with no knowledge of it, I have had to do a lot of research and exploring. But the process has been pleasant because I am naturally curious about the places I live. I was also lucky because I came here in 1965 after living for two years in Sweden. I approached Iowa as another foreign country. I read histories and guidebooks as carefully as I'd read them in Europe. Most useful was the classic WPA guide from 1938, Iowa, a guide to the Hawkeye State. Its long introduction took up not just history, agriculture, and industry, but things like racial elements and folkways, religion, education, and even press and radio. Next, it had chapters on the 17 largest cities, Ames to Waterloo. Finally, its 26 suggested tours crisscrossed the state, border to border, with wonderful stories from out-of-the-way small towns. Its being out of date was actually an advantage, because I could note what had changed and what had not, and I could look for connections between past and present. What the WPA Iowa lacked 
with serious attention to the natural landscape and how it had changed under the impact of Euro-American settlement. It was not until the mid-1970s when I was living in the country outside Iowa City that I began to learn the beauty and importance of prairies. Lon Drake, a professor of geology who was experimenting with replanting prairie grasses and flowers on exhausted strip mines in southern Iowa, had also planted prairie on an old cornfield on his own acreage, and watching it grow was an education to me. I added a search for prairie remnants to my meanderings around Iowa, only to discover that there were precious few. The state had not undertaken to preserve this largest and most important part of its natural history until the purchase of Hayden Prairie in 1946, named in honor of Ada Hayden, the Iowa State University botanist who had been a leader in identifying such remnants and lecturing to Iowans about their prairie heritage. By the 1980s, when I began to seek authors for my own Iowa guidebook, Take This Exit, I asked Paul Christensen to write an essay on prairies and Connie Mutel to write on the unique Luss Hills of western Iowa. I asked other authors to write about the distinctive ethnic communities and how to read the ordinary vernacular landscape of farms and barns and small towns. I followed the same policy in Take the Next Exit, 2000, which celebrated cafes, front porches, baseball diamonds, rural cemeteries, churches, and local hardware stores. It too gave more attention to wildlife and to the native landscape. My own essay on Iowa's lost lakes was an education in the state's massive drainage of lakes and wetlands, a contributing factor to our recent floods. Today, our concern for places and attempts to define and possess a sense of place are strongly influenced by the environmental movement historic preservation movements, and a fear that many of us have become rootless and alienated. What I have found is that with respect for the expressions of others, with curiosity, care, and study, and with the effort to express our own knowledge and feelings, developing a sense of place is definitely possible. So those were the thoughts of Bob Sayer, his uh, essay on sense of place. And um, obviously he's talking about the prairies, a lot of the natural landscape here. Uh, the guests who've just joined me on stage are going to talk about something else related to place, and this place in particular, the University of Iowa, in some um, tumultuous years. There is an exhibit that has just opened called Chaos and Creation on the Pentacrest. It can be viewed in the lowest level of the old Capitol Museum right here in this building. And uh, I've invited a number of people to, to talk with us about this place. And uh, looking back 40 years, if you can believe it's 40 years uh, since 1968, 1970, the years that are documented downstairs. So I would like to introduce the guests who are next to me here, Shala Wilson Ashworth of the museum, uh, Catherine Mormont, it's at the far end, and she's also of the Old Capitol Museum. Uh, right next to Shala is David McCartney, who's University of Iowa Special Collections archivist. Ryan Watson is a graduate student in um, cinema and comparative literature here at the university. And we have a senior, Yuan Zhou from China, who is finishing his undergraduate degree here at the University of Iowa and did some research in the archives to bring this uh, material together. So please welcome these guests. Uh, 
I would like to turn first to Shala, just next to me, uh, for an overview of this exhibit. Uh, what are you trying to do with the exhibit? And tell us how you began to pull it all together. Well, Joan, the exhibit downstairs is titled Chaos and Creation on the Pentecrest. And we're focusing on a time frame between 1965 and 1975, when this country and the, the, the world in general was focused on an enormous amount of change, not just due to the Vietnam War, but to civil rights, humanity rights, women's rights, all sorts of cultural changes that were taking place. And in turn, they affected the University of Iowa, which was a very open and liberal community. And the students were very active in wanting to embrace these changes. And so we've taken that 10-year time frame and recreated it through a timeline with photographs, with national, international, and university events. Yeah, uh, and I've just had a chance to, to briefly walk through it, but it's quite wonderful. You have a dorm room uh, recreated, uh, peace signs on the backs of jackets, and, uh, and then graffiti, murals, and whatnot. Can you describe some of the elements? We, we did re recreate a 1968-ish dorm room here at the University of Iowa. Uh, we tried to be authentic as we could possibly be, and uh, so far I've had good good <laughs> response out of that. We took a centerpiece uh, wall that we have in the Hanson Humanities Gallery and had a recent graduate in art depict a graffiti wall of the 1960s. Uh, I gave her a number of quotes from national down to university quotes and asked her to put them together and show what that time frame was in that mural. And it, it's, it's very effective. Well, let's, let's bring David into the conversation here because you, as university archivist, worked with a classroom of students. Bridget Draxler, I think, was in charge of this project and some English classes. And, and she and you began to talk about what might exist in the University of Iowa archives. Take it from there. This started last winter. Bridget contacted me with the idea of directing her uh, class of students in a course entitled The Interpretation of Literature. And what Bridget wanted to do was allow her students to have the experience of working directly with primary source materials, to, to look at original records that were created at the time that history was made. You, you've heard the expression that newspapers are the first draft of history. Mm -hmm. And much of the same can be said for the records that were created at the time. Uh, and Bridget recognized this and thought this would be uh, an opportunity for undergraduate students to work with primary source materials. For many of them, it was their first experience working with these uh, original historical documents and to make a connection with the events that they became familiar with from that time. So starting last winter, before the spring semester, she and I talked about uh, arranging for her students to work with these materials. And uh, it, it, it turned out to be an incredibly uh, uh, enriching experience for everybody involved. The old Capitol Museum certainly gained from their research. and. And I learned a lot from them along the way, too. That was a part of the fun for me. 
And I know you've brought some materials which you'll share with us from the, the archives, but let me just bring Yuan into this as well because you were one of the students in that class uh, going to the university archives and looking for quotes, looking for um, materials that would express the sense of the times. And um, I wonder if you would share with us how, how this all hit you. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for uh, my instructor, Bridge Jaxler, uh, giving me this chance to conduct this research, as well as the support from Iowa librarian, archivist. Uh, also, I'm very fortunate to have a personal interview with former president of the University of Iowa, Professor Boyd, on March uh, 10th. Uh, one thing that strikes me about the, the whole project thing is, when doing the research, I find most like journalists, uh, their reporting, their articles about the movement was very violent, such as uh, the administration, they didn't protect its students. But when I was having an inter interview with Professor Boyd, uh, he said this movement was very peaceful, actually. It's not violent at all. There's no one really get hurt. So there's a contrasting perspective in the whole movement. And uh, then I got to think, why do they portray the way totally different. I think there's a purpose uh, in their writing as well as in their, what we call, uh, their sense or purpose to influence other, you know, audience ideology about what this is about. So, in another way, um, it's very hard to judge exactly it was a right movement or it's not a right movement. Mm -hmm. The most important thing, however, I believe is why do they make the choice as they do? Mm, for journalists, uh, let's take it this way. Because I'm a student of history department and I'm also writing my analysis on the Vietnam War right now, uh, when historians describe event, they would say uh, this event is something like uh, violent, but the point is, what's the definition of violent? For different people, they have different definitions of violent. Mm, the journalists maybe think the students are very violent because they have a strong sense of anti-war sentiments. It's a spiritual thing, but for Professor Boyd, he thinks no one gets really hurt. That's his definition of violent. Then, um, you know, the most uh, uh, interesting, therefore, is why uh, do uh, people actually want to uh, destroy the university public, you know, safety and everything buildings? Mm, I think there's a reason there, and uh, he decided, uh, Professor Boyd decided to not close the University of Iowa. It's still open to public, and the students still go to the school. Mm, I think that decision reflects a very strong American spirit, which is democratic spirit. It's rooted in culture. It's not actually, you know, uh, in rhetoric or learned behavior. That's very important. But also, it strikes me because the uh, foreign policy in Dalai in this country. Uh, I'm from China originally, and uh, the political system over there is communist ideology. Citizens doesn't really have a role influence the government. Most, uh, most important foreign policy decision was made by uh, government members. But in this country, 
I think a citizen plays a very important role in influence uh, government decision-making process. Make a hypothetical question is, if Johnson or Nixon administration, they didn't think about the citizen's role, they would continue their intervention in South Vietnam. And what's the result of that? There'll be probably, uh, you know, some historian would say there'll be a war between US and China. It probably also involves nuclear weapon, but there's no what if in real life or in history. So I think it's very important for the student protest movement to actually stop the government from continuing the war. <laughs> Thank you, that, that was Yuan Zhou. And um, we'll come back to more of your thoughts uh, later on. Uh, David, do you want to add anything to this just now or show us some of the documents you brought? Well, Yuan, uh, along with the uh, other students in Bridget's class, wrote their own impressions uh, yeah. at the end of the course. And uh, they uh, summarized them in the form of notes that were uh, very telling uh, in terms of their own conclusions, what they brought, uh, what they brought with them from, uh, from the class. Uh, you mentioned that there were uh, nuggets of uh, mm -hmm. historical uh, facts that these students found. A part of their assignment uh, was to identify quotations to use in the exhibit, to find uh, moments that were particularly noteworthy in, in uh, any uh, event or cause, not only the anti-war movement but other contexts. Mm -hmm. And I brought along a couple of examples. Uh, one is a sample petition. This is a, one of about 200 individually signed petitions that we have on deposit at the university archives. And it took a little bit of uh, interpolating. I had to go back into our student directory collection here at the University of Iowa. We nicknamed them the Herd Books. Uh, and they're a wonderful resource to help sometimes identify and date evidence if we come across records that aren't dated. These petitions were not dated, but I was able to get at least a fix on the time. It was in the fall of 1967 because the, the signatories on these petitions all shared names in the herd books as I went through and noticed that mm -hmm. there was this overlap period that one time when all of these people were together here at the University of Iowa. And so I found that common thread and found later that this was indeed October 1967. These were petitions that were signed by students in protest not only of the war in Southeast Asia, but the university's response to student demonstrations up to that point. And there was one particular aspect of this that stood out as I looked at these petitions, and uh, you can probably tell by taking a look at the very bottom where the signature appears. I came to the conclusion that this is probably one of very few collections in the university archives that qualify for DNA analysis, <laughs> uh, because these petitions are signed in blood. And it posed an interesting preservation issue for our uh, preservation lab in the library, because we needed to uh, ensure that they were properly housed. Um, but, but that's how strongly people felt about that issue. Yeah. And um, it, it was one example. Uh, there were a number of other uh, interesting finds that students uh, came across in Bridget's class. I might read a couple of yeah. quotes, if I may. One is, uh, well, there, there are several that came from one collection that a student had found 
in records of the uh, Center for Draft Information and Counseling. Now, the Center for Draft Information and Counseling was organized here uh, at the University of Iowa in the fall of 1970. Uh, in fact, it was established uh, 40 years ago this month, September of 1970. And there were a number of references made not only to strategies that young men could take in order to avoid the draft, but also to provide information about the military. The center did take steps to present both sides in the military option. And so a couple of uh, quotations that uh, came up along that line came from the uh, military, uh, and it's a quotation uh, housed in the center records from the uh, Department of Defense in promoting the Army as an option while you were in school. You will develop qualities many other college men will miss. Self-discipline, physical stamina, responsibility, and bearing, qualities essential for success in a civilian or military career. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, there are records within that same collection which speak to a project that was initiated by the center called the Prison Visitation Service. This was a program in which draft resistors would visit those in prison uh, for, for resisting the draft. Uh, and here is a quotation from September 1st, 1971, and it's a recollection or observation made at the time, now it would be a recollection, of one participant in that program. And here's the quotation. The great doors close with a dang of finality that sends terror to my heart. Each time my friends go back to their cells, and I go back out to freedom. Mm -hmm. And that left a very strong impression, obviously, on the student who researched that, yeah. uh, that particular collection. I can imagine. Well, let's uh, uh, go now to Ryan and to Catherine. And uh, Catherine, I know you direct a lot of the educational activities here at the museum. And uh, there are a number of panels throughout the year as this exhibit is on view. There are, there's a film series and so on. I wonder if you and Ryan could tell us a little bit about that. What was your sensibility? What were you trying to show by choosing these various films? I mean, this is, <clears throat> this is an area I've done quite a bit, a lot of, uh, quite a bit of work in um, in, the, in this period, both in fiction and nonfiction, but especially in, in the nonfiction or documentary films. And one of the interesting things I think about the 60s, the Vietnam period, um, and the, the very rapid cultural and social and political and economic changes going on in this period was that Hollywood and, and fiction films never quite caught up. Mm -hmm. And they, caught, they didn't catch up in the sense that the only film that took place that had any relationship, fiction film, relationship to Vietnam was Green Berets, which is a, a John Wayne film. And you've all seen John Wayne films, I'm sure. It basically took a, a World War II John Wayne film and then set it in Vietnam. Um, and it had very little to do with what was actually going on or what the mm -hmm. sentiment was like in the country. And at the same time, documentary is emerging in this period um, as a force for a catalyst for social change, a way to sort of get um, a viewpoint into, into spaces that never would have been um, seen before. So I, I'm reminded of Robert Drew's primary, where he followed around Humphrey and Kennedy in their primary bid in 1960. I mean, this is very unprecedented at the time. And a lot of this is a technologically determinist argument that these, the cameras got lighter, there was the ability for on-site sync sound, 
And now the camera had this a lot of freedom. And it was the documentarists that were taking up these social issues and taking up sort of the tumult of the 60s and reflecting it back to us in a way that fiction couldn't. So you notice that our, our selections are very sort of uh, documentary heavy. And <clears throat> I think what we tried to do was you know, not make this just Vietnam, right? Even though Vietnam is a watershed moment, we wanted to, make, we wanted to give a sense of, of sort of what was going on um, beyond that. So we, we, chose, we chose high school and Monterey Pop to give a sense of obviously you know, the music, which is a, an enormous part of the 60s, mm-hmm. and high school, which is a really interesting, uh, it's a Frederick Weissman film from the direct cinema movement. And if you're not fam- familiar with the direct cinema movement, basically it was the sort of fly on the wall approach where the camera is there, it, it tries not to be too interventionist, tries to capture what's going on. And you see the sort of a day in the life of a, a typical suburban school in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But underlying that is, you know, this sort of authoritative structure, bureaucracy of the school mirrors larger, uh, you know, sure. political things going on in the country. Um, but I think, you know, if you do attend most of the film series, you should get a, a fairly colorful and multifaceted look at, at, the, at the tumult going on um, and how, you know, heady it was at the time yeah. and probably uh, looking back how we may feel a little bit more cynical about the sort of utopian mm-hmm. type of vision mm-hmm. that was put forth then and then sort of was co-opted and, and ultimately failed in some ways but not always. Yeah. Well, um, I, more information, I guess, can be found about the film series on the Old Capitol website. And, uh, and yes, Catherine. I should say each film will be introduced by Ryan. So we'll um, we're not just showing the film, but great. there'll um, be some contextualization yeah. going on great. there and history about each of the films. So. Thank Wonderful. you for doing that. <laughs> so, well, thank you. Um, and please, everyone, take advantage of uh, the exhibit in the lowest level of this building and uh, chaos and creation on the Pentacrest. Thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it so much. Thanks. Thank you. Well, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Hope you can plan to attend future World Canvas programs. Information about dates and topics can be found online at international.uiowa.edu. Now I would like to introduce the three uh, guests who are sitting next to me. They are visiting Iowa City, living in Iowa City for a 10-week residency this fall with the International Writing Program. And uh, they are Laura Fish, just next to me here, Ismail Bala. And I'm going to ask you to say your full name, Ian, because I, I don't know if you say Kasoko or Kasokot. It's Ian Rosales Kasokot. Okay, so these three writers have uh, come here for the IWP and have graciously um, uh, come with us tonight to talk about sense of place, how they use place when they pursue their their writing. And, of course, they're going through one of those change of place experiences right now, coming from their own countries, the Philippines, Nigeria, England, and living here among uh, all of us in Iowa. So perhaps I'll turn first to you, Laura, and ask you, well, you know, initial impressions of, of Iowa. Is it what you expected? Um, it's, um, I'm finding it a really friendly city um, and a very beautiful city actually. It's more beautiful than I'd expected. 
Um, and the weather is glorious. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, I think it's a wonderful place, actually. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You have uh, published two novels, and I have received many accolades for these novels. I know you're going to do a little bit of reading with us, but you also have spent many years working in radio and television for the BBC and others. Um, did writing begin as something of an avocation for you, and then? you really uh, focused on the writing, or was it always part of your life? Um, I've, I've always written a lot, um, but it wasn't until about 15 years ago that I actually thought about being a writer. Um, when I worked in TV and when I worked um, in the radio, I did write. I wrote documentary proposals, um, and I wrote pieces for radio as well, but that's a very different kind of writing. Uh, my first novel, was actually going to be an academic book um, about a journey that I did across Australia. And when I sent sections of it to my publisher, he wrote back to me and said, was I aware that some parts, some sections of it were in rhyming verse? And, <laughs> and he said, you can't have an academic book in rhyming verse, but you could make it into a novel. So yes. yes. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, maybe we'll just go down the line and, and get initial impressions from both of you. Uh, Ismail, what is your feeling about this place? Well, first of all, uh, I must say that I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I find Iowa so idyllic, even Picarex, uh coming from, from Africa, where there's a lot of chaos, where, as my friend would like to say, if you close your eyes, you're going to see people in front of you. So it's like... A, a change, a beautiful change from what I was used to back home to here where it's orderly, it's a really beautiful town. I can't believe there could be a city like Iowa where there are so many literary activities. Almost every day there is something uh, which is literary. So that's really what, what, what is interesting mm. about Iowa for me. Mm. And you're a poet. Uh, have you been writing any poetry since you arrived? Yeah, actually I thought um, when I arrived in the U.S. Uh, about two weeks ago, I, I was reading on the plane um, about the poet Joseph Brodsky. Um, Joseph Brodsky said when he arrived in the U.S. Uh, in the 1970s, he received a letter from another poet telling him that if he could not write here, if he finds a place so stifling to his writing, he shouldn't worry about that there is something about writing in a new place. When you find yourself in a place where you're not used to, you often find out that you can't write. But here I am, I have written quite a lot since I've arrived. So <laughs> in a way, really, Iowa, it's inspiring. <laughs> Glad to hear it. And, and so, Ian, you're from the Philippines. And yes. uh, yeah, and you tell us about all of your work. You've put together anthologies of young writers. Uh, tell us what you do. Tell us about your work. Your work. Um, I'm basically a short story writer. Also, um, I've written a novel and write, planning to write my second novel. Well, the planning stages in the way here in Iowa City. Yeah. Ah. So, what's the change? The plan has changed in Iowa City. You said? Um, no, not exactly. But I think I need Iowa City to be able to write that particular novel because it's about my hometown, ah. and I need the distance to be able to be more objective about it and to be able to write. I don't know. To render it properly, I can't write about it if I'm in the middle of so much familiarity. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. That's interesting. Is that the way you see it as well? You kind of need to step away a little bit from the thing you're familiar with in order to write honestly about it? 
um, you could say that when you are in the place where you are used to, um, closeness, closeness is stifling to one's creativity, I think. So if you are away from where you are used to, uh, there is always a distance, and when you see something from a distance, that's, I think, when you tend to, to be very objective about it. Mm -hmm. But then one could say, is there any objectivity in, 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 in imaginative yeah. writing? Yeah, but you need a distance, mm -hmm. either way. Yes, I find that having a distance um, from the place that I'm writing about does help. Um, and because I have to imagine, and so I'm trying to imagine the place, reimagine and recreate it all the time in my own mind, and then again on the page. Yeah. Mm. Well, that gives us a good lead-in, in fact, to a, a couple of selections you're going to read for us. I wonder if you would take us to your novel and okay. uh, share it. Um, yes, I'd like to start off by reading from my first novel, Flight of Black, Black Swans. Um, the book is the book that's set in Australia, um, and it's about a young black woman from England. It's semi-autobiographical. Uh, she gets a job working on cattle stations in the Kimberley region, uh, mustering cattle on horseback. And um, the book is really concerned with the part Aboriginal children who were taken from their natural families at birth, um, which was the government policy in northwestern Australia up until about the mid-1960s. And one of the things that I felt very strongly about was this kind of paradoxical situation in that the Aboriginal people that I was working with had a very strong relationship with the land um, and their sense of place was extremely important to them. Um, but most of them had lost their land, and the people that I was working with, some of the people I was working with, had bought back their own traditional tribal land, um, and the way that they were paying off the loan to buy the land back was by running cattle on the land, but the cattle were destroying the land. So there was this terrible irony there. The section that I'd like to read is from the beginning of the book. Um, and what I tried to do was to actually use the place and the land to describe the characters. And um, the main character in this section is an Aboriginal elder, and Susan is driving him across his land. Um, they're following the song lines, and as they drive, he is singing the land back into creation. Slinging his rifle on the cushioned seat behind, he sang from an old man's heart. A plaintive drone, strange and stirring, swallowed in the mountain's belly. Although the land had been taken from him, he belonged to it forever. Gnarled fingers like the boab's branches, plum cheeks singed ashen, furrowed brow, rugged, scabrous, tussled hair thinned, feathery as windbrush wisps of silky oil grass. His virtue, a stubborn humility, laurelled with pride, spiky as spinifex. His perennial soul was singing back creation. The elder took her to the top of a hill from which they could see his country spread before them. Blues, reds, greens, magnificent and still in heat. Told her how, in his youth, young men wrestled with crocodile. 
Passing trucks overflowed with brown arms waving, white teeth smiling, trailing dust clouds, copper in the airstream. A frill-necked lizard confronted the vehicle. There were no bush turkey. The white world she had known, a dissembled apogee, spinning, infringing, striving for identity. Can't blame them, they got none yet, remarked Paddy. It was pitch dark when the land cruiser lost momentum and the engine ceased disturbing the night. They had run out of fuel, straying into spin effects for a place to use as a latrine, sensing danger. Susan shone the torch of a death, shone the torch on a death adder's arc. Its puffy crescent mirrored the curve of her toe, the curved toe of her boot. Paddy laughed, amused at the thought of sucking venom from the girl's buttocks. They hitched a lift to a cluster of caravans nestled in the valley. All the men were drunk. They'd been mining. They filled the jerry and ferried them back. If we're the Earth's children, at best those men are mothers, said Paddy, the wisdom of mountains grinning from his eyes as the miners' taillights disappeared over the brow. Susan thought uneasily of the gaping shaft at the end of her garden in Cornwall. Okay. And it is from your book, Black Swans? Flight of Black Swans, yes. Black, Black Swans. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, the imagery is very sharp there. Australia is not your native home, correct? No. You're from England. I was and born in England. I'm never quite England. sure where my native yeah. home yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so so as, as you and as any of you in your writing begin to pull out those little fibers from the air, the, the things that, that you think will help clue a, a reader in to the thing you're imagining, uh, where do you begin? You know, do, you, do you think, here you are in Iowa City, for example, say you want to write about Nigeria or your home in the Philippines because now you have distance. What are the things that you draw from your memory that you think, oh, I need to talk about this, I need to refer to that in order to get that sense of place established for my readers? Actually, it's hard to say uh, uh, for me. Uh, when I want to write, I don't uh, like uh, predetermine what I am going to write about. So the writing just occurs. So it's, it's not something that you have control. It's only after you finish the writing that you can look at it and say, oh, this is what, what I've uh -huh. written. And that's when it comes to you, whether you have talked about certain places that you would actually uh, would want to talk about. So mm -hmm. it's not something that you could just say that I'm going to talk about this or I'm not going to talk about, yeah. about that. Hmm. The same with you, Ian? Well, in my case, in my novel Sugarland, it's basically about five friends and how, how they come to deal with some secret in their past. But at the same time, actually, when I started writing that particular novel uh, about two years ago, um, I really wanted to write a, a novel about my city. And I knew that I was going to write about my city. So in my first chapter, I really tried to, um, I had one character basically traveling the entire city, in a sense to map it out, in a sense to also map out for myself what I was trying to do with this particular book, okay? Right. Right. If I wanted to write about my city, I had to have that image of my city firmly in my head. So that first chapter really helped me out in setting in the details, the smell, the texture, uh, the taste, everything. Um, while he was traveling around mm -hmm. that particular mm -hmm. city, the streets, everything. Mm -hmm. So that's what I tried to do. 
Yeah. So, and all of that, of course, comes from my memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do all of you write about places that are real, that do exist, or do you ever write about fantasy, um, you know, com complete creation of, oh, yes, a, definitely. of a place? Those yeah. are the stories I enjoy writing the most. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, autobiographical stories are stories about your place. In a sense, yeah. um, there's so much more invested in it emotionally. Mm. You, in, in fact, when you write about autobiographical stories, you have to, to dig into your own life, yeah. and that is not exactly an easy thing to do. Yeah. So when I try to write something that is completely you know, completely made up. I smile actually while I'm writing it. I feel so happy. I feel so much pleasure from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for, for, uh, for me, I think, again, it's, uh, it's different. Uh, I point out many years ago when I started writing that actually I write best when I read other people's work. So it's, it's not like a, uh, when, when I read other people's work, that's when I get the inspiration to also write about about my own, most especially, but sometimes even without reading other people's uh, work, you, I can also write. Yeah. yeah. And, and what about you, Laura? Um, I think most of my writing is actually inspired by things that I don't understand, hmm. um, questions that bug me for a long time, <laughs> and that often has to do with places that I've been to. And so I think a lot of my, my work is yeah embedded actually in character and location um so they are real places yeah. yes maybe you can answer a question for me that is, has um, been in my mind my whole life one often hears writers say i don't really know how the story is going to end i just write it and the characters do what they're going to do and i'm not a writer and this seems to me impossible it seems that you would have to start knowing how it would end but no well uh, we have a saying in Nigeria, uh, which is basically, you could translate it as, if you are going on a journey, you are in control. But once you set out on the journey, it's like, it's the journey that is now in control. So I think writing is like that. Before you start, you can say that, well, I'm, I'm going to write about this. But once you start, it's like the writing has a life of its own and you don't know where it will yeah. end. I feel the same way. Like, uh, whenever I begin something, especially, if uh, let's say a, a short story. Huh? I know what I know. Want to what I want to say. I know how the story is supposed to be like. And then I begin, and then it takes off somewhere else. And I just follow it. The the characters sometimes dictate what happens to them, and so I have to respect that. And sometimes, mm -hmm. and most of the time, I get something really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I, be, I I believe in just trusting in that. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's an instinct. I, I'm not sure what it is, yeah. but I just trust it because it sometimes takes us to a, to a better yeah. place, yeah. writing wise. Yeah, I think um, it's been a mixture with my work. My second novel is a historical novel, so I knew how it was going to end, and so did everybody else. <laughs> so, um, because it's about real events. Mm -hmm. um, but with the book that I'm working on at the moment, I thought I knew how it was going to end, and then it changed on its yeah. own. <laughs> yeah. Are you sometimes annoyed with the path your characters have taken? You really would like them not to do that, but you recognize that they're, they're going in a certain way oh, and I you need to follow. Sometimes. Yeah? sometimes the characters, like I name a character, your name is Edgar. And then in the middle of the story, he changes his name to Sam. And, <laughs> okay, Sam. But I think it's different. With the novel, you really have to have some structure of some sort. So you really, you really have to know what particular thing you want to say in, in, a, in this chapter or that, or that chapter. It, I don't, it, it, yeah. it differs. 
yeah. every time. There are novels that dictate that, and there are stories that dictate some other method. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, for me, I'm not a, a, a fiction writer, so I will, I will not say I will not say that. But yes, sometimes you feel you feel uh, prostrated with what you have written. Not not in the sense of you don't like what you have written, but in the sense that you might have an, an idea, uh, maybe just a basic idea of uh, here is what I want to do. But in the end, you'll find out that if you follow that idea, the writing might not turn out to be successful. So you will have to tilt it into another direction, even though you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And when that happens, you, you, you like annoyed, but well, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> So, so you are all three from very different countries, and I know your works have been translated into many languages. You've all traveled to many places, but here you are now for three months uh, meeting other writers from around the world. What is that exchange like? Have you had expectations? You already mentioned that Iowa City was a, a pleasant surprise, but um, what expectations did you have of this um, residency experience in terms of sharing work and learning from fellow writers? Uh, what were you hoping to gain from it, and, and do you think that will actually happen? Uh, I found it very enriching. I mean, it, it's what I had hoped for and more. Um, uh, to be able, writing is very isolating. It's something that one does totally on one's own for hours and hours and hours <laughs> and days and months and years. Um, and so to be with a whole group of other writers is really a wonderful experience. Um, to see the similarities between all of us, I found to be really kind of self-affirming as well. Um, and to be able to listen to such an incredibly broad range of writing and different perspectives is just really, you know, just a really magical thing, I think, that I'll hold on to for the rest of my life, yeah. <laughs> really incredible, yeah. Mm. Well, that's, that's really an uh, interesting question. Well, I, I think writers, to be in the midst of writers is probably one of the most boring thing. Um, I like it being, being, being in the midst of all these writers from different cultures, from different countries, uh, with different style. Uh, but it's more interesting for me here in Iowa when I mingle with other people who are not writers. Probably with my fellow writers back in the hotel or at Shambo House or at any uh, gathering. What is more interesting for me, it's what is most interesting for me is not uh, discussing literature and writing, but discussing other things. I find that far more, far more, far more rewarding than just mm -hmm. talking about the writing. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've, we've really talk about literatures when, we, when, we talk, when we're together, right? But I, what, I like, what I like about hanging out with these guys is, mm -hmm. is the interaction that we have, like, like picking, picking off, I don't know, the, the interaction. Mm -hmm. um, but when I came to Iowa, what I really wanted to do here was, I really just wanted to write, okay? I'm meeting people, that's very, very good. But back home, writing is something that you really can't do um, full-time, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so when I came to Iowa, what I really wanted to do was to write, so that's my, that was my expectation. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of time to write here, so three months of that, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and, and do you all have, I know that you, I believe you all teach at universities. And, I teach, great, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, you teach. And you teach, I know, at university in Nigeria. Yes. And you have a fellowship, I guess, in Newcastle. Yes. You also teach there? Yes. Yeah, 
Yeah. So when you're, when you're teaching, are you teaching literature generally, or are you teaching people to become writers? Well, for me, I teach uh, literature, uh, literature and some, some bit of a creative writing. Yeah. Yeah. I teach Philippine literature. Philippine literature, yeah. I just teach creative writing. Yeah. Huh. So, you're all quite, quite young. I know established in your careers, but you're, you're still uh, young writers. We're talking about place and about leaving a record of ourselves on this program tonight. Um, maybe I could just ask you for some, some thoughts. Can you imagine 20 years from now what you might take from this place and from this experience, this uh, little American idol? I will always uh, remember uh, my stay here, and I, I guess in many years to come, it will always prefigure in my writing in one way or another, really. Yeah. Well, for the first time uh, in my life, what really amazed me when I went to the university library is to, sh is to see sheer amount of books in one place. Um, I, was, I was really impressed. I've seen all the books that I've always wanted to, to read, and here they are. I could, and when I was told that I could borrow as many books as, as possible, <laughs> and I could have books brought to my room, really, that's something that I could always remember. Really. <laughs> well, this is my first time in the United States, and my image of America has always been shaped by Hollywood and CNN. So, <laughs> uh, so um, the thing is, I, I had that conception of America before, but coming here, America was different. And I'm breathing in the culture, I'm breathing in the subtleties of things, and I actually was thinking about it last night, that I can actually read books now that I don't think I could understand before because they were just so steep into Americana. For example, I, for example, I was reading like, the book you were reading, Jonathan Franzen, and I always thought Jonathan Franzen was kind of hard to read because it was just so steep into Americana. But observing how things go on um, for the past two, two weeks, it's like I understand now how things actually, what he was trying to say in those yeah. books. So that's what I'm getting from my stay here. Yeah. The fact that I'm able to understand now the culture mm -hmm. from the books that I am reading mm -hmm. and appreciating it more. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, well, I'm working on my third novel while I'm here, so I'm hoping to um, complete that. So that's something yeah. that I hope <laughs> to take with me from here. Um, but also the connections that I've made with local people and with the writers. Um, I think that some of those will be lasting, and that's a really precious thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you all so much. What a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. Ian Kasuko from Philippines, Ismail Bala from uh, Nigeria, and Laura Fish from England. Please say thank you, thank you to our guests. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. So as you know, this is World Canvas from International Programs. I'm Joan Kerr, and I hope you'll consider joining us as a member of the live audience if you're seeing this program broadcast on UITV or hearing it on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI-FM. Again, our next program is October 8th in this room, and the topic will be slavery and gender. And Lisa Skemp is a professor in the College of Nursing. She's just joined me on stage. Hey, Lisa. Thank Hi. you for being here. And, um, I'm excited to have her share her work with us. Um, she works in global health and works with diverse populations around the world doing what are essentially ethnographic assessments of 
communities, their health systems, the way people interact and, and help their communities survive and individuals live better. And um, I, I think I'll just turn to you and ask you to tell us something about your experiences in the Caribbean and in India. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how people um, experience place throughout their lives um, in terms of their health. Okay. So that sounds very good. First of all, thank you, Joan. You're it's welcome. a pleasure to be here, and it's been lovely to listen to all the speakers today. Just yeah. very insightful. Um, the my work is ethnographic, and when we think about that, place is central to that because um, ethnography is looking at a community or a group of people, um, and to look at that culture within a particular place or a particular environment, so it's very well situated. So my work, um, at, and I'm a nursing professor again, my work is really looking at healthy aging. And it began in doing some work in the Caribbean as well um, as here in the United States to look at how um, older people age and how they then get the things they needed to live within a particular culture or community. Mm -hmm. uh, the early work was done in St. Lucia, and I continue to work there. But they opened my eyes to, um, in my writing, in my work, to the importance of place, to the importance of not only a geography or a location where we're all situated, and we think about that Oxford project, not only where we know the sights, the sounds, the businesses, um, the smells, but we also have those interconnections those friendships, those relationships, and that history, and how important that is to healthy aging and to creating a place with healthy aging. St. Lucia, really, the elders there, I would say the wise ones, definitely taught me um, and my work about that. So one is safe in assuming that we don't in our various countries, our various communities, there are differences in the way communities support aging, support, um, um, you know, healthy interactions with one another, right? There are some places where people are more isolated as they grow older, and other places where the community is really the support system. Definitely. Um, and we probably see that people are isolated in all communities, and others are more connected in all communities, and different communities provide those connections and those that, that sense of connection differently. One of the variables that we found in St. Lucia that I think was very interesting was the critical importance of the notion of exchange, and that was as elders or as members of the community exchange, um, interacted with people within that community, but the notion of what they had done in the past and what they're currently doing, and that influenced their reputation in the community. And one of the interesting things there was that critical importance of reputation, that critical importance of what one has done in the past with their community members, um, influences their place in that community. And I found that not only in St. Lucia, but in the work that I've done here in rural Iowa with a um, Hispanic and Anglo population, um, as well as some of the work with refugees and immigrants from the Sudan. So it's an interesting phenomenon about how we create, um, as individuals, our sense of place within a community over time. 
So uh, one would imagine then that if somebody is displaced at some point along the way, maybe their expectation was that they would always be part of their community. They would, they would grow through those years and be elders one day in one community. But if there was a forced migration or economic circumstances caused someone to leave that community where they felt most at home, um, that rootlessness is, is more than just not living next door to your family any longer. It's a real sense of, of who that person is or is not. Absolutely. So for, but there's, on both sides of that, on one side we may see as we age, and we're all aging from the time we're born, um, but as we age we may see that um, individuals leave communities and may never expect to come back. On the other hand, um, what I found in these small rural Iowa, this small rural Iowa community was although members some of the older folks said that they weren't planning on coming back. They did come back. They had kind of gone elsewhere, done their professional work, but they wanted to go back home. And home was this Iowa community. It's where they had their connections. It's where they, they had a sense of place. What we also found is that when they went back home, um, that may have been linked to when they became more frail and they felt like they needed to depend on some consistency of those relationships and they could find that back home, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, that's not always the case in that communities change. And then there's the other side of that that I think you were alluding to with the immigrant and refugee communities, in particular those communities that have been forced to migrate or um, are refugees that have had to leave, such as with the Sudan, and didn't want to leave that sense of place but um, had to come somewhere else. So how they then, as a community, start developing a sense of place here so that they can age in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, One of the things you mentioned to me when we were speaking on mm -hmm. another occasion was that sometimes well-meaning organizations, whether it's an NGO, maybe it's a university that would like to assist with healthcare needs in a given community, maybe someplace in, in a, a distant country, um, sometimes um, it's almost unavoidable to walk in with assumptions about what a community might need and how you might be able to offer some assistance. And it isn't, in fact, in the end, what those communities feel they most need. It may or may not be. So I, I guess I'm going to yeah. put a plug in for some of the community-based participatory research that we do. And the importance of this is that we, we use specific methods to learn about to uh, a particular place or a particular community. And we do that with, our, with the community members. So they also learn about their own community. And I believe that was alluded to earlier, where you kind of have to step aside to understand yourself a little bit better. Um, the example of the story I think that I told you that maybe I'll share is um, back in the 70s um, on this small Caribbean island, there was a concern. Um, there, there was a home where um, older folks that didn't have anywhere to go, as well as disabled, um, could stay if they had nowhere else to go. It was an old leper's colony. And well-intended healthcare organizations um, decided that they would um, help out this um, 
older person's home, so to speak. Now, the home, if I describe it, it could house approximately 100 people. There were two levels, first and second floor, and cement steps to get up to the second floor, but there was no access outside of the second floor. The concern was that many of the um, older persons couldn't leave the upper level. So that was also at the time here in the United States when um, American Disabilities Act was in place and there was a big push for accessible everything. Well, the organization worked with the community itself and worked with the um, old person's home, I'll say, and they decided that they would put in a ramp so that um, elders could have access to the out of doors. And it sounded like a great idea, not only to the community members, but to the organization as well. So they did, they built a ramp. Now the importance of context and really learning about a place and learning about the culture, the relationships and how people work and live in that culture is the ramp was built, however, it caused more harm than it caused good. And that is because the ramp was, first of all, there were no wheelchairs. It's a developing country. Secondly, the ramp was built so that there was ready access, but some of the persons that wandered, that may have been cognitively impaired, or um, would just wander away, they then had access to leave. And if you were to look at this home, it's, it was the old leper's colony, so it was in the middle of the rainforest in the bush area near the sea. So it also caused problems with harm. So the point is that we can all be very well intended when we think about um, building capacity so that we can have access and we can age in a healthy way. But it's very important to step back and to systematically also really learn to understand that place, um, not only the location and the geography, but the connections within that place. Sometimes I think many of us, uh, as, as we get older, we see our parents aging and there's more reliance on medications and so on, and those are frequently readily available to us in this culture, but not every place else. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what your sense is as a health professional um, about, about things like um, the reliance we may have in this country on, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals and so on, where, uh, what you've seen in these other in these other countries, you have seen um, healthy aging and you know the approach of death and all of that. In some cases, without much um, uh, medical intervention of the kind that we might uh, imagine here, people in the hospital, maybe on ventilators and whatnot for a very long time. And yet, um, in the end, we will all go. But in this country, I think there's an expectation that we should have uh, the ability to go to a hospital, or we should be able to have you know, healthcare, including pharmaceuticals. Uh, what is your sense about what people in the rest of the world expect as they age? Well, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but I could speak to a couple of yeah. places. Uh, I believe that with globalization, we are seeing an expectation globally for an increase in pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. for an increase in medical intervention, um, that all should be done. And I believe that's globalization, and it also has to do with this notion that was spoken about. We, they know the United States through CNN and Hollywood. Yeah. So there's that expectation. However, the pharmaceuticals may not be very appropriate, and the medical interventions may not be very appropriate. Mm -hmm. So again, it's important to, to step back and look at the appropriateness of that. 
And in some of the work that I do, I feel very honored to not only work with the wise people, many of the older people, but many of the alternative healers as well, who look at other methods, other alternative methods to promote health, to promote healing, to... Um, and, and then the notion of dying or moving to that next phase is framed in a different way as well. It's more of a, well, for example, in the small village that I was in, it's more of a community affair when someone dies and it's more of a celebration, although people are very sad. But it's another way to view dying um, and different cultures view it differently. The nice thing with globalization is that we have this wonderful opportunity to learn from one another and also with NIH, the, the National Institutes on Health, the push to look at alternative therapies as well. Yeah. Well, I know that you work with international organizations, and um, I, I wonder if you could just give us an idea what you think the, the greatest challenges are just now for, for um, you know, improving the health and living circumstances of populations around the world. What are the biggest challenges we face? One of the big, I'll speak to a big challenge that we face in terms of healthy aging, and that is the huge demographic shift. Um, we are seeing, um, with the demographic shift, with a much larger population of older persons and a smaller number of those younger persons that are able to provide some of that support. Now, this demographic shift is because of all the great things we've done in this last century, because of immunizations, because of, of health care and such. But with this demographic shift, I, I believe that's one of, the, uh, one of the greatest challenges. And so what we're looking at is, um, with aging and an increased proportion of people that are older, sometimes there's associated chronic health care needs and issues. So the question is, how do we promote um, care for persons that are older that have some of these health care needs, yet maintain um, a system in which they, can conti they continue to participate in society, we continue to acknowledge their wisdom, we foster um, dignity, independence, and self-determination and care. So that's some of the, in terms of aging, some of the um, greatest needs right now. Um, do, do you think that, um, you've mentioned numerous times the sort of respect for the, the wise person, the elder, the person who's, who's got something to share with the community late in life, and, and I think that there are times when Americans sometimes feel that we've lost that respect for the people who um, may now be retired, they aren't part of the active workforce any longer, and unless they're family members, uh, I think some people wonder whether or not we properly respect and uh, try to learn from people who've had long lives. Do you, do you see that uh, in, in America? Do you think that, you know, that's not the case? I believe it varies. I do know that there is a major push by the World Health Organization to really change the paradigm or to the framework for aging. And that is to foster participation of all people across the lifespan at all ages, regardless of their possible level of ability. So for example, the, fostering the ability to age actively despite disabilities despite possibly being homebound or whatever. So while I, 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 I think 
the, with industrialization and retirement, um, the notion of at a certain age you step aside and, and are no longer part of that society, that's, needs, that needs to shift. And I believe one of the reasons that this needs to shift is because economically we can't afford for it not to. Well, even listening to Lisa Skemp from the College of Nursing, thank you so much for giving us this different uh, aspect to our program tonight. Thank you, really. Lisa Skemp. <laughs> thank you. And now we're going to welcome a, a sculptor, a professor here at the University of Iowa, a really wonderful person, Isabel Barbosa. She is our uh, final uh, uh, top guest of the evening here. Uh, and she is, as I mentioned, a sculptor, um, uh, lives in Argentina part of the time, was born in Argentina, and lives and teaches here at the University of Iowa. And Isabel does the most wonderful, uh, often large, large sculptures, very often made with uh, natural materials or found objects. And um, I want to make sure that everyone who sees or hears this program uh, checks out the portfolio she has online because you see the most fabulous photos of uh, some of her creations. So uh, again, Isabel Barbusa, I'm so glad you're here. And when I asked you whether you might be willing to come on and talk with us a little bit about how landscape and place affect your creative process, uh, mm -hmm. thankfully you said yes. So yeah. let me turn it to you. Okay. Yeah, actually, when, when you emailed me, I was just coming back from Argentina because I went during the summer to do some work on the soul flats in Argentina in the northern part, I went to Salinas Grandes, which is one of the largest soul flats in the world. And I think the email said, well, now that I'm coming home, but I don't know where home is, if it's there, here, or, or where. So um, this idea of, you know, um, uh, I think in, in looking at my work into the landscape, I'm somehow trying to put together, you know, uh, this idea of place where I'm coming from. Because I moved to this country when I was almost 21. Mm -hmm. And I grew up during the dictatorship in Argentina, so the idea of home that I have from Argentina is very different than what Argentina is right now. Uh, my mother's family and my mother were from Spain, mm -hmm. and they moved to Argentina when my mother was seven. Um, my father's family was uh, from Italy, and so it's, you know, and Argentina is a very mixed country in that sense. So um, anyway, uh, yeah. I think by looking at the landscape somehow and trying to create a sense of, you know, um, what is it that we project into the landscape. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. and, and tell me about some of the materials you use. I, I know that you do a great deal with books, with discarded books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and, um, that's uh, something that I started working on, discarded books, um, probably in 1990, I believe, or 89. And it was something that, coming from the third world, and finding books in the trash was quite shocking for me, <laughs> because a book was a, such a precious object. And um, so I started working collecting books from the trash and altering them. Like, for example, there are books that fall, and you open the book, and it, they turn into kimono, so you can work the books. Mm -hmm. and, and so I started playing around with all these books. I did an installation, and I collected from the trash 1,400 paperback books. Totally, you know, from laundry mats, from trash, yeah, everywhere. And I did a temple. I cut them, I soaked them in water, and I created a temple. 
And at that time, when I created that, it was in uh, 89, 1989, it's when paperbacks were put on the supermarket. So I was doing my grocery shopping for food, and then <laughs> there were books, paperback books. So this idea of you know, the paperback as, as an object that it's consumed so quickly, more than the, you know. And so I started doing all this kind of, it, the, the piece was called uh, Fantasy of Possession, this fantasy of you know, possessing culture in yes. a way. Yes, yes, yes. So, well, and then I know that some of your works, um, uh, you, you made the most beautiful thing that almost looks like a crumpled fabric, but it's made out of razor blades. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, those are my wings. Yeah. They're uh, wings made out of, they're 10 feet each, and they're 4,000 razor blades. Yeah. And so, I mean, there, there are a lot of symbolism into that, but basically, they're very delicate. You look at them from away, because I put pigment and resins and also Vaseline to give them kind of a different texture. And so as you're looking, walking into the wall and looking at these pieces, they look like an ocean. Mm -hmm. And then as you get closer, you identify the detail. And somehow I see them as a very feminine or very female kind of mm -hmm. wings. Mm -hmm. Their name is Action, and so, uh, or Acción in, in Spanish. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I work with those too. <laughs> muscle shells and yeah. um, honey wax combs and so forth. Well, and we should talk about the honey wax combs uh, because I think many people who, who uh, know your work saw the installation that you had in uh, the faculty show, I guess, yeah. three or four years ago, uh, just before the museum flooded, yeah, flood, I think. Exactly. <laughs> 2007, yeah, eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can you describe it, that part of it was hanging? And yeah, um, I, I went to, Men I'm from Mendoza, which is in the mountains, and um, I work with a beekeeper. I was very interested in, in bees and the idea of the bee, bees. I was reading Matterlick, the intelligence of bees. Yes. And uh, the way that he talked about the bees and the honey wax and, you know, the comb was so poetic and so interesting. You know, I, I was able to see what he was talking about. I read the book in Spanish, by the way, because I think Spanish is a very... Um, you know, you have so many images in, in Spanish. So um, I had a sabbatical, I have a, a career leave, as they're called now, and I decided to go to Mendoza and work with a beekeeper, because there's a lot of honey in Mendoza. And um, I was very interested in honey, the bees, apiculture, and so forth. So I follow the beekeeper, and then it depends on where you put the beehive that you will have the, the flavor or the taste of the of honey. Like if you put it close to sunflowers, it will, the honey will taste as sunflowers and, and so forth. And the way that they work in Argentina, or I think the third world, when they have honey wax combs, is they have movable frames, they're called, and where they put a stamp or imprinted wax with the hexagon so the, the bees can build the comb. It's a very fascinating process. So anyway, uh, the beekeeper had it to change this base, and I bought everything. I bought 256 frames, mm -hmm. which I cleaned completely, and I created the world of the map, and uh, it was a piece that explored uh, maps in general, and how 
I mean, the map is a projection of who is making the map. Yeah. So I was playing with that idea. But anyway, everything is hand-sewn into these frames. So it's an installation and, and it can go anywhere I want. So I was the creator of the world. Um, it has an incredible aroma of, of honey. You walk through it and you, know, you can smell the honey. And um, it was very important, the shadows that it projected because you know, I was talking about these projections of the map. And everything fits into Africa because I did the piece in Argentina and I had to bring it here. Uh. So <laughs> it's a huge piece. So it's a, like a puzzle and Africa is the largest section, so everything goes kind of on top of like that. Well, and, and much of what you do is very, very fragile, so... Yes, yeah. um, um, but, but I make sure that they will somehow last. Yeah. Um, um, I can put a resin on the, on the honey piece yeah. and, and so forth. But, but yeah, it, it's more ephemeral than, let's say, bronze, for example, mm, sure. or metal. So when you're creating your pieces, do you, do you actually think about, uh, you know, 20 years from now, will this piece still, still uh, be able to survive? Well, you know, it's, I think I'm, we're living in a very interesting time, and um, I have some pieces in museum collections, and, and I think museums have, or curators, have um, changed so much because there are so many artists who work with ephemeral works. And so it's always, you know, I sign a contract and I said that I'm willing to fix if anything goes yeah, wrong and yeah. so forth. But it's the nature of the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think right now I cannot see myself working in bronze, for example, just because the piece is going to last. Mm -hmm. I do the best in trying to use materials. I don't want to use a lot of toxic resins, for example, but to try to use materials that will preserve the piece. But I think it's very interesting when your, your work is part of a collection and how you negotiate you know, that basic idea with the museum, mm -hmm. how they're going to protect it. And so I'm trying to be in addition of creating the piece and, and using these you know, kind of ephemeral materials, I'm very careful in explaining the museum what, how the material is about and, and I'm in giving the piece in a way that I believe is going to last. Mm -hmm. I don't know if a thousand years, but maybe we're not here in a thousand <laughs> years. So, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a negotiation that goes with. Uh, uh, I, a lot of my works and my book works uh, use beeswax mm. and wax was used by the Egyptians you know that was oh, the cool. first time that wax was used and, and we can see work or, or the frescoes in Pompeii you know it's wax that's mm -hmm. material mm -hmm. that they use so mm -hmm. those pieces would last for a long time mm. well you mentioned the, the large temple that you made with books and yeah. then the, the wax uh, on, on the paper but um, somehow it's, it's very sort of philosophically interesting to me that you're using books, you know, uh, thoughts from many writers or encyclopedias or just yeah. whatever it is that you've gathered together. And um, in a way, they sort of document the times we've, we've lived through. And um, it, in your finished piece, sometimes they're just little cuttings of the books, and sometimes the books are all splayed all over. You can't really, I think, read the words, but there's something just textually wonderful about seeing paper yeah. applied in this artistic way. I mean, why is it that books caught your attention for this well, work? Well, I'm working right now with encyclopedias, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and, and I think everybody knows that uh, we're going digital. Yeah. And, and so 
there is a big problem that uh, you have the encyclopedia and what do you do? I mean, if your kids have yeah. pronouns and so forth, if you take them to the Goodwill store, they won't take them. I mean, they have to throw them away, so sure. it creates an, a big issue, you know. And um, so a lot of people find out that I work with encyclopedia and they come and they say, do you want it? And I think what's interesting to me, it's the paper and, and also the text, the object, the, the, the fact that uh, the book has weight, you know. And so I kind of emphasize that when I work with, with the book because the object is disappearing. This, you know, the time that we had to sit and read a book and turn the pages, everything now it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of on the screen. So yeah. Yeah. Um, the paper and the wax and the text is what I'm very interested on too. Yeah. Um, what, what were you doing in the salt flats? You said you had been in the salt flats. Well, it, uh, yes, that's my new <laughs> research. Um, the landscape is un unbelievable. There are thousands and thousands of kilometers, and there, you know, everything is salt. And um, the green car, it's uh, going to use um, lithium batteries, and so they're going to produce uh, lithium. And so somehow the landscape is going to be destroy a little bit. So I'm very interested in this idea that we're bearing green, mm -hmm. but we are not very sustainable, really. Mm -hmm. So I'm exploring all that, yeah, and yeah. I'm planning on going to Bolivia, maybe in December. And so can you pull the parts of your own imagination related to art that um, are the, sort of the Argentine side and the part that might be from an American sensibility? Do you detect in yourself a blending of these two cultures? I'm from everywhere. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm suspended. As I said, you know, I come from immigrants. Um, I moved here. Um, I left Argentina during a time where Argentina was not, I mean, it's very different than what it is right now. I think what I have in common with Argentina, because when I'm there, I'm not from there, and I'm here, I'm not from here, in a way. So it's kind of amusing, in a way. But um, yeah, um, as a matter of fact, when I was going to Sol Flats in, in Argentina, all of a sudden, I was a tourist, mm -hmm. uh, based on how I, I was being seen by the locals. So it's a very interesting shift. But uh, yeah, obviously, I bring all that into my work. Um, I lived in this country more than what I lived in Argentina, so I consider myself from here, too. But the way that I see myself is, you know, very um, multicultural is not the word. I don't like that word. But, you know, it, it, I live in a floating world. If you yeah. might say <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Well, now, I, I think that you said you have a piece that's just been installed at the University of Iowa Museum of no, Art. No, next semester, maybe. Oh, next maybe. semester. Yes, yes, in yes. May. yes. Where we're talking, yeah. Good. We're, we're, yes. We'll and and that um, is drawn from art book covers? Well, yeah. Um, I work with the libraries uh, mm -hmm. here, the University of Library, the Art Library. Uh, the librarians have been wonderful because when they get the new books, they pull out the covers and they have these <laughs> amazing images. So they send the, the covers to us. So I've been collecting the covers, making collage, and also using the spine and creating libraries that they go around. So, I mean, they're flat on the walls, and so I, I, I organize the books by color. It's not by subject or anything. I, I like, you know, pinks and, and reds. <laughs> so anyway, I've been working with that, and um, it's, it's, you know, I, I think it's very lovely that they save the covers and they send it to the School yeah. of Art so students can use it, but um, uh, the images are amazing. Yeah, the reproductions are very wonderful. So I'm working with that, yes. Yeah. 
Well, you know, all of us who um, travel to, to other places, um, many people go to museums. They yeah. sort of get a sense of another time and another place from what's in the museums. What do you think future generations are going to think about what we leave behind today in the way of art? Well, I think what um, everything is going to... I mean, I, I hope not, but somehow we, we have this new idea that we look at art through the computer. I mean, I will say... Most of my students don't go to the library to look at books or not so many to museums. I mean, they absorb this idea about art through computers. But um, the, I think it's very exciting what's going on. I feel very happy to be part of this time in, in, in yeah. life and in the world because um, it, we are raising that question exactly. I mean, what do we do? Is it, does it have to be permanent? Can, I mean, is it just documented on, on a video, on a photo, or their actions. I mean, I think it's very beautiful, the project that it's got, the, the show that is going on downstairs, that the letters signed yeah. in blood, I mean, that we have that kind of documentation. Um, I don't know if we will have the object anymore or not. Yeah. Um, but it, it is interesting. There are many questions, and mm -hmm. um, we'll see. Yeah. Well, we're very lucky to be living oh, in the times you. when you're living, and your work is absolutely beautiful. I'm thank so glad you. you would come and, okay. and share this with us. Just stay here with me okay. as I wrap up the program. Okay. This is Isabel Barbosa. Please say thank you to her. And this has been World Canvas from international programs at the University of Iowa. And so I want to thank everybody uh, here in the audience, also all of our guests tonight. I hope you can come uh, see our next program on October 8th here in this room once again. I want to say thank you also to my colleagues, to Amy Green and Caitlin McBride and Connie Shea and Hetty Veckmans, Karen Waksmith, Chris Clough and Samantha Bell. Uh, once again, the next program, October 8th. Please look for this program to be broadcast on UITV in the very near future and on Iowa Public Radio. Also. KRUI. So thank you for coming, and we'll see you next time.